Well, good morning, and thank you guys for being here. It's, a, it's exciting to gather to worship together always through the preaching of God's Word, and we're moving through the Gospel of Mark together, following Jesus through the highlights of His ministry. And as we're moving into the fifth sermon now of this series, we can sort of pick up some themes that have been established, and I'm definitely seeing authority and power of Jesus to forgive sin, to condemn sin, to control the natural world. Last week, we talked about the the Sea of Galilee. And this week, Mark shows that Jesus' power and authority extends beyond the natural realm, even to the spiritual realm. Some of you might have to go back deep in your memory banks to your your, uh, childhood age, or maybe if you got young kids, you, you got to go through it again. But there was a little game I'm sure all of us have played at some point in our life, and that game is called the Limbo. Limbo, of course, is a game where uh, the crowd f- uh, forms a single file line, music plays, one by one you pass underneath the bar or the pole, and it gets lower and lower. A lot of times music plays, chubby checker, how low can you go? And the catch of the game is that you pass under the bar and it goes down a couple inches and then it goes down and then eventually there's one person remaining who can go the lowest. And if you touch the bar, you fail. That's the whole game. Now, if you want to spice things up, I know some of you do, you shimmy while you go under the bar, just to make it a little, just a little interesting, right? Now, I don't know about you, uh, I never liked that game, never, never touched my soul, never made me feel masculine. Um, even at the skating rink, you know, they always, whenever you're just trying to get the kids to play some games at the skating rink, I dreaded that time. I don't know, just short, stocky men, I just don't feel like love that game. So uh, there's, you know, maybe it's because the... This was the time for the, the thin young girl to shine. Like this was her game. She could do, she could bend all the way backwards and it was just, anyway, I always lost so I never loved that game. But the phrase popularized by the limbo is how low can you go? Uh, and that was in my mind all week long as I was studying this passage in Mark 5. Now there's no dancing in here. There's no bending over backwards or flexibility in, in this text. But I think that there is a concept that Jesus showed us of going lower and lower and lower. In fact, I can't think of a more lowly, dark, degraded case in all of Scripture than what we're going to see in the man whom Jesus meets today. As you think of all the miracles and all the healings that Jesus did, he was no stranger to difficult people. People on the low end of society's totem pole, those outcast by society for various reasons. Jesus spent time with sinners and tax collectors. That got him in trouble. They were low in society in their view. But Jesus went lower than that. He spent time with those with physical ailments. Those were homeless and paralyzed and ignored by society. But he went even lower than that. He touched the skin of lepers who would possibly make him unclean who couldn't even live with the rest of society. And, and there, there are many, many more examples all throughout the Gospels just like this, but today might be the lowest that we have in the Gospels. Today's passage tells the story of Jesus' encounter with a man in Gentile territory who was unclean, pitiful, dangerous, possibly possessed by hundreds or even thousands of demons. This is about as low as you can go. The story is real, which makes it a little scary. It's strange, but it's also very telling of Jesus and what Mark set out to do in giving us this passage in the gospel. 
I think Mark wants us to see, especially on the heels of last week's message on the Sea of Galilee, there is no limit to Jesus' power. Not in the weather and not in the spiritual realm. Jesus has ultimate authority over the spiritual realm, over Satan, over the demonic. And additionally, Jesus models for us there's no limit to his compassion that he has for the absolute lowest of society. He takes on the most difficult case possible just to show that there is no low that is too low for Jesus. So before we look at Mark 5, pray with me. Lord, we ask your divine hand to be with us today as we hear from you. Lord, I pray that something in this text would reach out and touch someone in this room. Lord, use the regular means of grace, the preaching of your word, to encourage, edify, and build up your body this day. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open to Mark 5 if you want to follow along. Mark is the second book of the New Testament. It's a gospel in its genre, uh, which means it's historical narrative, part biography, but also persuasive. That's what a gospel is. And so last week we, we left off with this immediately preceding story, the calming of the sea. A major windstorm threatened to capsize the boat with the disciples inside and with Jesus asleep. However, Jesus was awakened, you remember, with a simple word, a simple phrase. He controlled the weather. He calmed the storm. Be still. Boom. It's over. It was a miracle. And the disciples, in turn, were more afraid of Jesus in the boat than they were the storm outside the boat. So that's where we left off last week. This message picks up as that very same boat and that very same scene lands at its destination on the other side side of the Sea of Galilee, which again is just a really, really big lake. All right. Now, um, this story is interesting on its own. I don't have to dress it up. So just read with me. Mark 5, 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. All right, we'll pause there. We, that's a pretty wild intro, right? Not much to add to that. So we see Jesus reaching out to this broken, violent, outcast man. I want to show you the first point we're going to study today. Number one, we see a man who is in a season of shackles. A season of shackles. The season that this man was in was the darkest imaginable. Uh, though he had the strength to break physical chains imposed upon him, uh, he needed Jesus to come and break the mental and spiritual chains and shackles on his mind and on his spirit. Now, as with mo most stories in Mark's gospel, I've been telling you sort of about this, this idea of a harmony of three gospels, uh, the canonical synoptic gospels. Uh, there is an account of this story in Matthew and Luke. Now, there aren't 
earth-shattering differences between these uh, three stories as they're told, uh, but there are a few little minor things I want to bring out to you so we can get a full picture of what's going on. Luke adds to the account that we just read that this man was naked the whole time. Now that's important. I needed to know that. Thank you, Luke. This man was uh, without clothes in the story. Matthew adds that there was actually another demon-possessed man. So there's at least two men in the story. It seems Mark really just wanted us to focus on this one for the benefit of the story. But Matthew mentions that there actually was another man. Matthew also remarks that these men were so fierce that no one could pass by them. Now, I think that's probably the most important part because if you just read Mark's uh, version of the story, we might be left thinking he's just sort of a troubled individual that keeps to himself. That's not actually the case. He, he seems to be a violent person to the point where people divert their travel around this area because they're scared to walk by. Uh, he had a reputation and this where he lived was off limits. So with those details from the other gospels, we piece together a very picturesque scene. The boat with Jesus and the disciples docks on the other side of the sea. And suddenly, uh, out of really, uh, I don't know how shocked they would have been. I would have been very shocked. A man is sprinting towards them, naked, angry, and violent. So you could imagine how shocked they would have, be, uh, they would have been. Now, where exactly is this? Scholars have a lot of fun debating where this is. Um, in your Bibles, you know, you might have different versions of that word. I've got Gerasenes. You might have Gadarenes. You might have Gergesenes. All right? That's a lot of different words. This was the old territory of the Gergeshites in the Old Testament. That's why all these names are similar. Um, and there were areas opposite Galilee called Gadara, Gergesa, and Gerasa. So that's why you're seeing different versions of this uh, word. So I'm just going to let the scholars deal with that and just let you know the most important thing about this is to know this was in Gentile territory. So this was not Jewish territory on the other side of the lake. This was a Gentile-controlled area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so no sooner when Jesus' feet steps onto land, this man emerges from the tombs. It's not a happy meeting, and uh, it's not the welcome committee. It's, it's clear he's violent and unstable. And within about five seconds, he's there, and he's on the scene. He's in the disciples' face, in Jesus' face, rushing out to meet them. The townspeople cannot deal with him anymore. They have tried unsuccessfully to bind him with chains and shackles, but he could rip them apart. Kind of reminds you of the old uh, Disney movie, Hunchback, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? Where they tried to get him, they tried to chain him, and he just kind of breaks it. That's sort of what I picture. This was supernatural strength, but this was not like Samson miracle strength, where we clap and say, good. This is bad supernatural strength. This is demonic strength. No one could do anything with him. It's, it's a bad combo when you are both the most violent person in the room and the strongest person in the room. That is a bad combination. Verse 5 says, you could hear him screaming day and night. He's out there yelling in the day, yelling in the night, cutting and gashing himself with stones and rocks. You see why I posed the question, how low can you go? It, is, there, is there a more sad, pitiful, disturbing case in all of Scripture. If you think of one this afternoon, tell me tonight. I'd love to hear it. It was about at this point in the sermon prep this week that another thought crossed my mind that really is kind of cool when you think about it. This is why Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. You ever think about that? Because last week we're reading it and we're just thinking, what are they doing on this boat? Why would they go into this storm? 
Why would they go through this crazy scenario? Jesus knows, obviously, the storm was going to happen. Where are they, what are they doing? Well, we know now that Jesus would cross a stormy sea just to reach one person that was unreachable to everyone else. I think that's pretty awesome. So before we move on to the rest of the story, I want to pause here and make a couple of comments about this man's condition. If you want a picture of Satan's wish list for your life, this is it. This is it right here. This is what Satan, if he had ultimate power and control and got to write the story and do whatever he want, this is what he would want for each one of our lives. You need to know that. He's not your friend. He's not your buddy. He is a thief who wants to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you. Yes, most of the time in our society, Satan is disguised as an angel of light. We know that. Uh, He disguises his intentions. He appears in classrooms and behind pulpits and in the halls of government offices. But every once in a while, as they say, the quiet part gets said out loud. The secret playbook is read for all to hear. And this, what we've read, is Satan's wish list for your life. He wants these things for you in one way or another. He wants you to be in isolation in the tombs. That's where Satan wants you to live. Now, I mean metaphorically, right? I'm not saying go out to the funeral home and, and put out a cot. I'm saying Satan wants you to live in isolation from any fellowship, any community, and any friendship in this life. Satan wants you to have no local church, no meaningful friendships, no feeling of belonging anywhere. So if you're there today, you're, you're living out part of Satan's desire for your life. He wants you, another thing, he wants you to love death. He wants you to harm yourself. He wants you to hate yourself. This man was surrounded by death. He spent his days cutting and harming himself. To Satan, that's a day well spent. Sure, cut yourself. Drink till your liver quits. Smoke till your lungs quit. Kill your children in the womb. It's all in a day's work for Satan. God, however, wants you to cherish your life and the life of others. He wants you to take care of your body and love the temple that he has given you. Satan devises new and creative ways for us to hate ourselves and hurt ourselves. However, we are supposed to love ourselves. And I don't mean that saturating ourselves in selfies and personality quizzes and taking enneagrams till our thumbs fall off. I don't mean we wake up each day, like Joe Osteen says, and recite a mantra of I am's about yourself and how wonderful you are. No, I mean that we embrace Christian values such as contentment and joy and gratitude and peace for what Christ has done for us. We embrace that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving God. We embrace that all men and women are made in the image of God and have value and worth because of that. I know who God made me to be, and I love who God made me to be. You should be able to say that. Satan wants you to be shameless. This man was naked and unashamed. He was violent and unashamed. God's desire for you is to have a functional conscience, to be sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the weakness to those around you. He desires us to dress modestly and treat others with kindness, not to do whatever we want in this life with no shame and to broadcast our sinful pleasures to the world. That's Satan. That's not God. And lastly, Satan wants you to operate in his strength. 
Was this man actually the strongest in town? If you busted out the bench press and the, and the squat rack, was he actually? Probably not without all those demons inside him. However, he had a false strength so long as he served Satan. God's desire is that we not be consumed with a false worldly strength, but rather in our weakness, we manifest God's strength. You can accumulate a lot of power and strength in this life by taking a deal with the devil, but it is a false strength that will one day be exposed at the coming of Christ. This man was in a season of shackles. Who knows for how long? I don't. I don't know where everyone is here today, whether you're in a season of joy and freedom or whether you're in a season of shackles. But I can promise you this, you're not as low as this man. You're not as down in the gutter as this man was. What does that mean? If God can do it for him, what was that? He can do it for you, right? Do you believe that for real? You better believe it. Let's see what happens when Jesus and this man speak to one another. Read Mark 5, 6 with me. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. The second point I want us to look at today, number two, we see a subordinate status. A subordinate status. Now, from all the evidence in this text, we would imagine that this man, along with the accompanying demons, was accustomed to being the baddest dude on the block. I would imagine you start to feel that way when people avoid you, when they walk around you. You start feeling like your chest puffs out a little bit, like you're really something, like everyone's weaker than you. You're stronger than anyone. Everyone took another path. But what you need to see in this portion of the text is that everyone is a subordinate in the presence of Jesus. Whatever room Jesus enters, he is the power in that room. And guess what? Nobody knows that better than Satan and the demons. In verse 6, this man runs and falls down. Now, the Greek word behind fall down, I thought it was really interesting. It's proskineo. Now, this word is almost always translated in the Greek New Testament to our English word worship. Of the 60 times that word shows up in Greek, 52 times the translators chose to translate it worship. It's connected to that meaning, that Old Testament meaning, when you prostrate yourself. You lay flat. That's what that means in an act of worship. Now, I know why the translators made this choice. Uh, it's a demon. And they wanted to be careful to translate this word uh, to preserve the idea of a fearful submission by the demon, but also not to lead the reader to suggest that this demon was truly worshiping Jesus, because we know that that was not the case. This man, face down, speaks in verse 7, says probably out of the side of his mouth with his face in the dirt. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Notice, instant recognition, correct usage of the title. Even a demon can have correct theology misapplied. 
In Hebrew, this word would have been, if we were in the Old Testament, this would have been the title, Son of El Elyon. You've probably heard that title. That's what is translated Most High or Sovereign God. The demon uttered truth. He knows exactly who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is from. Now, what can you do in a situation where you are an absolute subordinate on the floor? You're speaking to a superior. All he can do is ask and beg. And so that's what we see. This man, the demon, was no longer in the power position. He did not master the art of the deal. This demon, in the presence of Jesus, was negotiating from a position of weakness. Verse 10 says that the demon begged Jesus earnestly not to be sent out of the country. Everything about this scenario communicates that the demon-possessed man is a subordinate to Jesus. He falls on his face. He confesses Jesus as son of the Most High. He asks not to be tormented. He begs not to be sent out of the country. Now, why would I go into detail telling you this at a time like this in our world? It's because we need reminders in our life that no matter what it feels like, no matter what we observe around us, no matter how discouraged we get with the advance of evil in this world, Jesus is always in the power position. Evil and Satan and demons, though very real, are subordinate powers to the power of God. They are not equals. We are not dualists who believe God and Satan are co-equals, dueling it out. You know, the announcer comes over the top, or it's a classic battle of good and evil. It, it's not a battle. It's not equals. This is not a football game that could go either way. God is in charge. The only reason that Satan exists is by the allowance of God for his purposes in the story of our redemption. And I would argue, if you're a spirit-filled Christian, and I hope you are, you have more inherent power in you with the Holy Spirit than does a demon. You are stronger than a demon if you are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's kind of comforting, isn't it? It's enough to make you stand up straight, isn't it? Now, if you're not a Christian, i got to be straight with you. I've got no promise from the Bible I can give you on that. You are out there like an empty house on the block, and there's squatters in the neighborhood, and they might take up residence one day and they might not, but I would make sure that you bring Jesus inside your house. Because once he's there, there are no squatters. Now, there are two traditional teachings on demons that have sprung out of this text. Uh, neither of which I can confirm with absolute confidence, but I want you to be aware of them. Uh, first, there was a tradition in Judaism that calling a demon by its name gave you some sort of edge over it. Uh, this is a tradition even today. Uh, obviously, Jesus needed no edge, but he did ask for the demon's name. The response is legion. Legion was the name of a Roman military group between 4,000 and 6,000 men. That's the size of the Roman legion. Now, maybe there were that many demons inside. Maybe he's just saying there's a whole mess of us in here and it wasn't meant to be mathematical. I don't know, but there was more than one demon in this man, and it seems like a lot. Another tradition on demonic teaching comes from verse 10, when this demon requests not to be sent out of the country or out of the land. This has led some to teach that demons take up residence 
in areas or regions or have a, a, a place of preference. You might hear someone say that you can feel spiritual warfare in a city or you can sense that there is darkness or oppression in an area. Uh, and, and that might be what they mean by that. Now, again, I cannot confirm biblically that is true, but I will say that is a legitimate position to hold. It's not taking this text out of context, I don't believe. So what we do know is this. Thousands of demons that had absolutely put fear into this whole town and ruined this man's life were absolutely subject to the word of Jesus. They had nothing over him. Jesus had unbridled control over the spiritual realm. The demons are subordinate powers to Jesus and any Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, to the moment you've all been waiting for, one of the weirdest parts of any Bible story ever. Uh, we've seen a season of shackles, a subordinate status. Number three, I had to do it, a swine send-off. Had to do it. We were in the S alliteration train. I couldn't get off once I started. So, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will in 15 seconds. Okay. So, we're going to read Mark 5.10 and onward. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So sometimes you're just reading the Bible and you got to just stop and say, that was weird. You know, like there's not always a great, awesome answer to everything. So here's what we know. Here's what we know. This was a Gentile area. Right, try to get something out of it. This was a Gentile area. Obviously, they would not have had pig farmers in Israel. All right, that was not kosher. Uh, so they're not in Israel. Pig farmers would have been out there. And in the Old Testament law, pigs were unclean animals. So Jews would never eat them, never farm them, never have anything to do with them. So to a Jewish audience, this would have been a nice little cultural swipe. They would have enjoyed it, gotten a good laugh just like you did. But there has to be something else beyond that. It almost kind of seems at the first read through this like Jesus is making an allowance, doesn't it? I mean, that's my first read through. Like the demons are kind of like, hey, don't do this, but will you give us the, the pigs? He's like, yeah, okay, sure, into the pigs, you know, and he just kind of sends them over there. But what we don't know, what I think would unlock this, and I just, you just can't know it, is whether the demons perished when the pigs went over. When the pig died, did the demon inside the pig die or go away? Or, you know, was this like a step down from, from just getting cast out? When Jesus cast out a demon, did it go somewhere? I mean, there's just things we don't know and we're not going to know, that. put that, I know you're building a list, put that on your I'll ask it when I get there list, okay? This is one of those things. Um, but we, we don't know why this was a step down from just being cast out and why the demons asked for this. I don't know. But what we do know, what's most important, if you said, all right, what, give me some takeaway from this, all right, is that seeing those pigs rush over the cliff was at least a powerful object lesson to this man about his sin. 
The disciples saw it, Jesus saw it, the farmers saw it, and most importantly, the man saw that those demons were gone and he was free. Wouldn't it be nice, I was just thinking about this, wouldn't it be nice to have a visual representation of your sins leaving you, being cast out? Now, the Old Testament had that. If you remember back in our study of the story of redemption, Day of Atonement, we talked about the scapegoat, did we not? When they have this animal and the, the priest pronounces, you know, puts his hands on its head and, and symbolically transfers sin to it, and then they lead that thing out in the wilderness and let it go. That was a visual representation. I can't help but think there's something about that here. This is like the Gentile version of the scapegoat. This is the scape pig, all right? And so this man got to see his sins being carried away from him. Wouldn't you like to have that? If every time you confessed a sin before God, you just saw something leaving, you know, just go, you could see the sin just take off in that direction, a little paper airplane, a little hummingbird, you know, just gone. There it was. I'm forgiven. I can see it. I believe it. It would be nice to see that, right? That's what this man got, a gift. He could see the demons are gone. He could see the pigs rush over. They would never do that on their own. He could see the pigs plunging over the edge. I think that was a powerful object lesson, a gift that Jesus gave him to see that his days of demon possession were over and that he was free. So, <laughs> we've seen the season of shackles. I had a really corny joke in there, and I just went right by it. I don't think you want it. Now, that's what I call deviled ham. All right. So, <clears throat> I didn't want to do it. You, you asked for it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I got another one, but I'm going to let that one go. So, we've seen the season of shackles. We've seen the subordinate status. We've seen the swine send off. And lastly, number four, we see a surprising solution. So, this story resolves in kind of a weird way. Like this is kind of a weird story. So I want to look at the surprising solution. If you would, read Mark 5.14 with me. It says, the herdsmen fled. These are the pig farmers. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting in the boat. And the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Okay. End of this story is a little strange. First of all, the pig owners run to town. They start telling people what has happened. A little crowd comes out. Whether they have, you know, torches and pitchforks, I don't know. But a crowd comes out to see this. And you got to remember, in their defense, this would have been a financial loss. All right? I don't know if anybody in here has been a farmer before, but I promise you, you're not happy if someone just tosses 2,000 of your pigs over the cliff, all right? You, you're going to want some financial restitution. So they come out here, and they're upset, 
and they see this man. Now, they all knew this guy. They had tried to subdue him before. Once their greatest fear and nightmare that they could do nothing with, who couldn't even be chained up, remember, was sitting there, fully clothed, crisscross applesauce, drinking tea with his pinky in the air, and saying, jolly good show, pip, pip. And it was just like, he was all good. Things had changed. And the crowd, to respond to this, they don't get excited about this man's freedom. They are upset at what Jesus has done, which is a reminder to us that this crowd would have rather had this man stay in these tombs, never experience freedom, but as long as they got to keep their pigs. So what was this man's response? Let's go to the man. What was his response? Because sometimes people get healed and, and they kind of just shake Jesus' hand and walk away. This wasn't like that. Verse 18 is really interesting. He follows Jesus to the boat and begs to follow Jesus. Now, I don't remember a story with this in there either. It's, I think he's asking to be the 13th disciple, if I read this correct, okay? Because the same word, to be with, is the same that the other disciples use in their stories. Now, this man's body was healed, yes, but he became a believer in Jesus. He wanted to follow for real. Like, he was going to get on that boat and go back over across to the other side. Ultimately, for purposes beyond what we know, Jesus says, here's a better plan. I want you to go back to your town and tell them what you've seen. Share them, uh, share with them the mercy that the Lord has had in your life. Now, where was that? Where was he going back to? Gentile territory. So maybe this was the first Gentile missionary that we have in our gospels. But Jesus set this man up with a clean bill of health, a free mind, and he says, the place I need you most is to go back and tell everyone. And it says that's exactly what he did. Verse 20 says that he proclaimed it back in the Decapolis. Then Jesus gets back into the boat. They go back to Jewish territory. And we're reminded, now that's the end of the story. We're reminded all of that from the from the boat last week to the sea, the storm and the wind, all of this was for that man. All of this was for one man. Jesus went on a mission to free this man in Gentile territory to show him and his disciples exactly how much power he has over the spiritual realm. This was a case that no one thought could be dealt with. It was written off. It was assumed this is a lost cause. He couldn't possibly ever be restored. It's over. Let's just send him out to the tombs and let him cut himself and scream all day because that's all we can do. And Jesus dealt with a legion with one word when the whole town couldn't. How low could Jesus go? There's no limit to that answer. He wins limbo every time because he has no limit to his power. Jesus told us a story, a parable, about a good shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 to pursue after the one who had gone astray. Today, we see Jesus 
was a practitioner of this very story. He did the parable in real life. I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't give up on us when it's difficult, when others do. I'm thankful that Jesus walks directly into our problems and says that he has more power than the enemy has over our life. I'm thankful that Jesus can heal and restore even the ones who seem to be the farthest from God. How low will he go? Well, wherever you are today, right now, have no fear. It's not too low for Jesus. Pray with me.